Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. So welcome to the Regulatory Policy Seminar. I'm Joe Aldi, the Faculty Chair of the Regulatory Policy Program. Thrilled to have with us today a colleague from the Law School who I've known for a long time, because if I actually said the number of years, it would start to feel experienced. And, uh, but we're thrilled to have here with us Joe Goffman. Joe uh, has uh, recently joined us here at Harvard uh, back in the fall to take on uh, the position leading as the Executive Director of the Harvard Environmental Law Program. Uh, he has a lot of experience uh, both in uh, government and in the advocacy world working on uh, environmental policy. He was on the staff at uh, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee when that committee wrote uh, the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. And Joe was quite involved with the development of the acid rain program and then transitioned over to EPA to help them figure out how to implement uh, the program he helped write into law. And then after that, he went to the Environmental Defense Fund to occasionally then take on EPA to make sure they were doing a good job implementing the law that he had uh, written into law and helped them promulgate the regulation. Uh, more recently, uh, he uh, has been engaged in some of the work on climate change policy. He worked again at Senate Environmental Public Works uh, in 2009-2010. After that, he then joined EPA and served essentially as sort of the senior counselor for climate on a lot of the work that EPA was doing, including... Uh, probably most significantly there at the end of the Obama administration, the Clean Power Plan. So uh, Joe is going to discuss with us some of the work that they've started over at the Harvard Environmental Law Program, thinking about what is happening to uh, regulation in the administrative state uh, under the new administration. Uh, Joe's going to present uh, his uh, talk and then take uh, questions uh, at the end. So if you can hold off uh, with questions uh, until then, I appreciate it. And with that, welcome to the seminar. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much, Joe, for, for giving me the opportunity to do this. Um, uh, I, I ha can't resist uh, adding one detail to my, my biography, which is uh, in 1991 or 92, after I left the EPA, having uh, led the drafting of the proposed implementing regs uh, of the acid rain program, um, I discovered that we had made a mistake. Um, and so as an EDF lawyer, I uh, sued the EPA and the DC <laughs> Circuit um, to correct the mistake. Um, what was the mistake? Uh, phase one of the program allowed, uh, allowed uh, unregulated sources to opt in to generate tradable allowances. And the mistake was that we uh, uh, propounded an erroneous arithmetic formula for counting the number of allowances they could generate. Um, uh, I'm sort of shocked that I remember what the mistake was. So. Uh, in any event, um, uh, sitting next to Joe in the front row were two of my colleagues from the program, Robin Just, who's our communications and outreach director, and William Niebling, um, who's research counsel uh, right now in the program. Uh, William and I both worked in the Office of Air and Radiation together during the Obama administration. Uh, and as you'll hear, what I'm doing in the next little bit is uh, reporting on the progress of an ongoing project 
that the three of us are, are, are working on, um, which is uh, to track changes in practices at the EPA um, that Administrator Pruitt is now directing. Um, these are not changes in specific rules, we do that too, but changes in different protocols affecting the way the agency conducts its, its business. Uh, and what we're curious about is whether or not these practices, these practice changes matter. Um, whether, they're, whether they're concerning, difficult, challenging, but not particularly consequential, or whether in fact they are consequential and really will change the character uh, of the way the agency does critical parts of its, parts of its business. To be uh, uh, faithful to what we think we know now, we still think it's an open question. <coughs> but as these changes are being made, they continue to feed our curiosity and to continue to feed our conclusion that this is an investigation that's worth, worth pursuing. Um, the, uh, a, a member of the audience here, who I will protect by not naming, um, uh, and I were colleagues in the Obama administration, um, and I should say that he was one of my most esteemed colleagues in uh, the administration. And he very gently pointed out that the title of this lecture might be seen as being somewhat hysterical. Um, and uh, I will concede that possibility. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, plead that, you know, as, a, as someone who spent uh, uh, seven and a half years in the Obama administration uh, absorbing certain values and certain very fine points of the, of the Obama administration and the EPA culture, you could understand why I might have a little bit of PTSD um, from uh, uh, closely observing what's gone on in the EPA and in the current administration since January of 2017. Um, so this talk is going to be really in two parts. Um, the first part is going to focus on um, what, uh, sorry, the first part of is going to focus on my struggles with the clicker. Um, the, the, the first part um, is going to uh, give a little bit of background about what our uh, program is actually doing um, and is going to then look at two major buckets. One is what I guess my own lived experience told me that the agency's character is, what its essential mission is, and what seemed at the time that, that William and I, for example, were there, were essential, uh, were attributes that were essential to it carrying out its mission and instrumental to carrying out its mission. So that everybody is working with at least the baseline that William and I, uh, in doing this work, uh, now are operating with. And then the second part of this talk will be about the specific half dozen or so practices that the agency has changed since Scott Pruitt become, became administrator uh, and why we think they at least might be uh, representing threats to the core mission or the core capacities um, of the EPA. Um, in other words, we're asking the question, are these uh, a series of self-inflicted attacks 
um, that really will weaken the agency. An agency that has signature attributes in the areas of science, uh, sharing information with the public and holding itself accountable to the public, and then of course fostering a culture of compliance and engaging in enforcement um, of its mandates or enforcement of its requirements when that, when that culture of compliance lapses. Um, this all began last year uh, when the environmental and energy law program at the law school began keeping a formal tracker of individual uh, rules um, that EPA and the Department of Interior uh, and other environmental agencies in the executive branch um, were in some way or another withdrawing, proposing to repeal, weakening, or delaying. Um, and if you go to the website of the program, you'll see a, a rather uncomfortably long list of such rules. Um, but, and here's, here's an example, as you know, uh, the EPA has proposed to repeal the Clean Power Plan. Um, uh, it has uh, proposed to delay the implementation of standards addressing uh, methane leaks in oil and gas operations. Um, it's withdrawn the waters of the U.S. or the clean water rule um, just recently, that is this week. Um, it's announced its plan to uh, withdraw and replace with weaker standards, standards addressing uh, fuel economy and greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles. Uh, and it has been trying to withdraw um, or suspend uh, the methane emissions rule um, uh, under the auspices of the Bureau of Land Management. But we also started to observe that during the time that the agency was withdrawing individual rules, um, it was also announcing that it was giving itself direction to change the way it conducted business in a, in a variety of areas. Uh, and we noted that a lot of these changes seemed to align with preferred outcomes, that is to say preferred deregulatory outcomes and um, some of the rationales offered for these changes were dubious. Um, uh, it seemed to be that the agency was engaging in one of the cardinal sins of an expert agency, which is being results-oriented. Um, that is, seeking results in the first instance and then back-engineering a, a rationale or a decision rule change to uh, uh, increase the probability that those results would be uh, reached. Uh, and we thought that these changes were serious enough uh, individually uh, and as a, as a suite of actions to really justify um, asking ourselves the question and then investigating the question, um, uh, is the agency really crippling itself under the uh, direction of the current administrator? Um, William, my former colleagues, uh, Administrator Gina McCarthy and Assistant Administrator Janet McCabe, have already given us an answer in the New York Times. Um, they published an editorial about a week or so ago, uh, uh, which uh, concluded with this statement. Um, uh, the, uh, 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 the, the approach that the program is taking is a little bit more guarded. Um, we're in the process of investigating the, uh, the question that, that um, Gina and Janet raised. Uh, and with apologies to Robert Mueller, 
these questions are not a targeted investigation yet, they're merely a subjective investigation. Um, now, I should say that I'm using Gina and, and Janet's words as a, as a foil, um, but I'll also say, um, uh, because I, I enjoy sharing the good news, um, I had the good luck of working with some very prominent politicians during the course of my career, people ranging from George Mitchell when he was majority leader of the Senate to, uh, to Joe Lieberman to, to Max Baucus and to others. Uh, and I will have to say that Gina McCarthy and Janet McCabe are by far two of the finest leaders that I've ever worked for. Uh, and Harvard is awfully lucky that uh, Gina is here at the public, uh, at the, at the, uh, at the public health school uh, and Indiana University is equally lucky that Janet is at the law school there. Um, so what I want to do is start by uh, setting the stage um, for the inquiry. Um, it's important to go back, I think, to recall that EPA really is an expert agency and what it means for the EPA to be an expert agency. Um, and to make my point, I'm going to uh, start with the proposition that in a lot of ways the agency was built, if you will, by the statutes it was given to implement. Um, and since I know it better than the other statutes, I'll use the Clean Air Act, which Congress uh, enacted in its modern version or modern form in 1970, re-amended re re or reenacted in 1977, and amended again in 1990, and it's the 1990 version that is in place today. For all intents and purposes, the, the act was, has not been changed other than to address or create the renewable fuels program. Um, the uh, act gives EPA a number of tasks, um, all of which are extremely demanding on a technical level and require the marshalling of, uh, of all the key physical science, social and economic science, and engineering and technology disciplines. Um, the agency is required to do things like master health science in order to state, in order to establish uh, air quality standards. Um, it needs to master uh, a, a nuanced and sophisticated understanding of technology, both from an engineering point of view and from an economic point of view. It has to answer questions across a whole range of sectors and a whole range of pollutants as to what the best system of emission reduction is. Um, it has to assess for virtually every industrial sector the performance of virtually all facilities in terms of controlling toxic air emissions and then set standards based on the top 12% of the performers in those sectors. Um, it has to set uh, tailpipe emission standards, again for a range of pollutants from both light duty and heavy duty vehicles. <coughs> Um, it has to assess, um, after applying a round of technology um, to toxic air emissions across an individual sector, it has to assess, after that requirement is fully implemented, um, what the remaining risk to effective populations is. Um, and, then, uh, and then if the risk is uh, beyond acceptable levels, it has to apply uh, another round of, of technological requirements. Um, and it has to figure things out like uh, what is the contribution of 
uh, a state far away from a downwind city um, in terms of transported air pollution to the, to the air quality of the downwind city. Um, so I, I think using these examples, I hope I'm conveying just how uh, rigorous, demanding, uh, and, uh, and, and, and in-depth the agency's mastery has to be of just about every, uh, every science uh, and every, every technical subject um, that is brought into play in, in accomplishing these tasks. Um, the agency, I should say, has methodically um, and has done so for a long time equipped itself um, to carry out all these tasks, both in terms of its professional staff and in terms of building a network of advisory committees consisting of outside experts from the physical and uh, social and economic sciences. And of course, um, thanks to uh, the fundamental tenets of administrative law, um, it has to issue detailed proposals before it acts, explaining why it wants to do what, it wants, what it's proposing to do, collect comments from the public, including the affected industry and other experts um, on the proposals, and then carefully and persuasively assess the comments uh, and justify its actions moving forward. Um, uh, uh, the, so that's, 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 well, that's what it's got to do. Um, there's, there are intensifiers or, or amplifiers of, of these demands um, that are inherent in statutes like the Clean Air Act. Um, uh, the, and I, I try to capture that, um, you know, in, in a somewhat abstract way. Um, Congress um, uh, had a very careful reckoning or understanding of what the problems were, or what the what the challenges were in dealing with air pollution. You know, Congress understood that the economy would continually change, technology would continually change and scientific understanding or the health sciences and environmental sciences would continually advance. So Congress gave the agency the job of, in effect, redoing everything uh, on a f once every five year or once every eight year schedule. Um, essentially, Congress was looking at these continual motion machines of the economy, technology, and science uh, and directing EPA to ride the wave, so to speak, uh, and, uh, and, and, and move along in terms of setting standards, either health-based standards or technology standards, um, with, with those uh, three mechanisms of change in society. Um, of course, you know, everything is not harmony in this regard. Um, when you are uh, undertaking changes uh, or writing air pollution rules, for example, you're imposing costs on private firms. Um, you're dealing with not only inherent complexity in the problem-solving task you have to take on, but you're generating conflict mostly as a result of the costs that are being, being imposed. Um, and you're dealing with entities on whom you're imposing requirements who would much prefer not to pay those costs uh, and would much prefer to externalize those costs um, to third parties as opposed to uh, bear them themselves. And as I said, 
because the Clean Air Act is based on continually changing the rules of the game in an in a on schedule as technology and economics and science change, essentially the EPA has been not just authorized, but mandated by Congress to disrupt <coughs> and be a disruptive force uh, in, in, you know, with respect to uh, the, the economy and, and, you know, large groups of individual firms. And these are examples of that. Um, the Clean Air Act requires the EPA to assess national ambient air quality standards for six pollutants, including ground level ozone smog and fine particles every five years. Um, and it requires the agency to assess uh, technology-based standards uh, once every eight years. Uh, and by the way, the public can sue the agency uh, in federal court and induce a judge to order the agency to stick to these schedules if the agency, if the agency lapses. Um, so of course, the agency has to continually run on a treadmill, if you will, and when it comes to the conclusion of these reviews, impose yet another round of, of, of costs or requirements uh, on the private sector. Uh, that's why the agency is equally invested in fostering, a, if you will, a, a culture of compliance across the economy, and when that culture lapses, um, bringing actions to enforce its requirements. Um, against uh, polluters that fail to, to meet, meet the standards. Um, instrumental to all of this, sort of woven through all of this activity, is uh, a multi-pronged public accountability me mechanism. Uh, the public has the right to, uh, as I said, bring a lawsuit to compel the agency to act when it's missed a mandate or a deadline. Um, the public has recourse to the federal courts um, if uh, it's unsatisfied with the uh, final actions that the agency takes. Um, the public, of course, participates in uh, filing comments before the agency uh, takes a final action. Um, the public ultimately has come to depend on being educated about a variety of environmental uh, science and technology and policy questions. Um, and the agency itself has come to depend on all these forms of public engagement uh, as a way of building trust with the public and maintaining, a, if you will, a sort of stability while it's undertaking um, this continual uh, uh, process of change often taking place in, in, in the context of conflict. Um, so, over the decades, this is the range of competences that the agency has developed um, that are uh, critical to um, uh, carrying, carrying out, its, out its job. Um, it's, it's, it, some people have said that the agency is not one agency, it's three or four agencies. Um, it's a science agency. It's a compliance and enforcement agency. It's also, by the way, an emergency response uh, agency. Um, in the context of compliance and enforcement, uh, at a technical level, it has to always be gathering information about how the regulated community is performing. Um, it has to be projecting a kind of credibility as, as, a, as a compliance officer or an enforcement officer, because what makes the system go is not enforcement, not, is not a, a plethora of enforcement actions, but the fact that by and large, in this country at least, 
Um, most corporations embrace compliance um, and rely on the agency to reinforce that so that uh, their preference to comply or their incentives to comply don't put them at a disadvantage with, with bad, bad actors. So it really, the agency's credibility and it's being active or proactive in this area um, is, 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 is significant and consequential. Um, and as I mentioned, the agency has become a significant source of public education about environmental and health sciences, including climate science, um, and about, uh, and about uh, uh, environmental policy. Um, and of course, the agency has to be a good lawyer um, because virtually everything it does is contested, um, uh, either in uh, the D.C. Circuit or sometimes in the Supreme Court and, and uh, on many occasions in federal district courts. And what, you, what the agency benefits from is a series of judicial doctrines that favor courts deferring to the agency. But the agency has also benefited from the fact that it has demonstrated over decades, thanks to all these competences um, uh, well applied, that it can be trusted by the courts. Um, courts are reluctant to second guess um, the agency on any number of a range of technical issues that are part of its, of its, of its rulemaking. Um, and they're reluctant to do it again, not just because doctrine <coughs> says they should, but because the agency has essentially trained the judiciary um, uh, to, to trust it, um, uh, thanks to all these competencies. Um, so um, if, like many stakeholders in the last year or so, and those of us in the environmental and energy law program, um, you notice specific changes in agency practices being mandated by current current management at the agency, um, changes that affect all these core competences, um, you begin to worry, or at least worry enough, um, to want to put together um, uh, an active ongoing inquiry to see whether or not these changes um, uh, are not just disturbing but potentially consequential. And the changes that we have observed um, have affected directly the way the agency um, does its science, um, the way the agency does its <laughs> compliance cultivation and enforcement, um, the kind of information uh, the agency is now providing to the public, um, whether the agency is embracing, as it has in the past, the fact that it's accountable to the public, um, and whether the agency is, is uh, providing services to the public in a way that's fair and trustworthy. Um, so I'll stop here before I go through the specific examples um, to see if there are any questions. I actually wanted to add something to that list because I, to me it's maybe more subtle, but I think it's actually more scary, which is that if you talk to the agency staff, the higher-ups aren't talking about um, you know, the routine briefing <coughs> the expert staff would do of political just doesn't happen. Yeah. Because there's no expertise going into the decision-making process. Uh, well, I'll say two things in response okay. to that. One is um, the way we're doing business in this particular program is a kind of intellectual crowdsourcing. You know, uh, we're adding items to our, to our 
uh, report, our online report, as folks, you know, you know, bring considerations like that to our attention. So by all means, keep keep it coming. Um, what you put your finger on is is really salient because previous administrators, including the two I worked for. Uh, really did absolutely positively depend on um, hourly contact with expert staff in order to make their decisions. That meant that, and, and those hourly context, contacts um, were scheduled often well in advance, and that meant that the staff had to spend days, if not weeks, preparing to present to the administrator and other senior uh, political appointees. So it, it, it I won't say it imposed, but it really reinforced and strengthened the inherent uh, intellectual discipline of the staff as it did its work. And of course, it meant that when the, dis when the administrator or the assistant administrators were making decisions, they were uh, uh, you know, elevated to the level of rigor that, 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 that was commonplace for expert staff to apply. Um. <clears throat> With regard to public accountability, I would have thought that the chief uh, player would have been the Congress, the relevant committees, uh, but I didn't hear <coughs> much from you in that regard, so I guess the obvious question, um, how much confidence do you have in the Current Congress, in terms of of holding the EPA accountable. Well, allow me allow me to say everything good that I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can move on. Okay. Um, can I ask another question? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. Um, if you were God and could. Um, change the law under which the EPA operates, um, would you make any changes? Or is, is the law adequate? Or I guess uh, also, can anything be done in the law to force the EPA to do more than it is currently able to do? Well, the, the, um, the, there are, I think if you, uh, I think if you were to convene recent alumni of the EPA, both uh, political appointees who had served for a fairly long time and, and senior career staff, um, and ask them how they could improve performance, um, I think that there'd be an, there would be a set of answers. Um, I think there are you know, long-term practitioners of implementing the Clean Air Act who have come to, uh, you know, we all have our wish list of how if we could you know, do the Clean Air Act amendments of 2020, what they would look like, and they would be very much focused on, um, uh, on, on making the whole apparatus perform more efficiently. Um, but the other question you, you implicitly asked, which is about accountability. Um, in, in a, you know, Congress did something very interesting in the Clean Air Act when it included a provision that said that any person had standing to go into federal court and seek an order compelling the agency 
to meet a deadline that was in the statute. So in effect, Congress, uh, maybe you could almost say Congress didn't trust itself entirely to act solely on its own to hold the agency accountable. It also shared power with the public to compel the agency <coughs> using, using courts um, uh, to, to, uh, to uh, take more action than the agency will, would have taken up to a certain point, at least consistent with its mandates. Chuck, let me come sure. here. I, I, when, when looking at these, I, I feel like um, I feel like sort of the, the behavior, the decision making of leadership at EPA historically have been subject to norms mm -hmm. and some institutional constraints and some political constraints. In, in this administration, whether we're looking narrowly at EPA or more broadly, one could say a lot of norms have been blown up. Right. So, so, so the, the those those norms of evidence-based decision making, drawing on the best science, etc., has, has has clearly been attacked. Um, and then the question is sort of: Are there institutional constraints that may matter, may start to bind more in a world in which we see a deviation from historical norms? And some of these, like, can Congress step in? I mean, in some of this, you know, EPA is different than a lot of agencies. It doesn't have an organic act. Mm -hmm. I thought it was actually interesting the way you described EPA as sort of built by the Clean Air Act. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, it has emerged as a function of a couple of the major laws that it, that it implements. That's right. Uh, but the, the absence of an organic act has raised questions about sort of what might be the constraint that we would see in statute. And mm -hmm. I uh, have probably just as much good to say about what Congress could do in this space as you do. Uh, but there's also a question about whether or not there could be any other sort of bureaucratic constraints. Like when I look at the restrictions on peer-reviewed studies, I think you know there is OMB guidance on what kind of peer-reviewed studies yeah. can be used. And maybe one says, yeah, there, there is a there is a I don't know if it's an OMB memorandum. What's the actual form of the document, the guidance? And you may say that's on the books, but this OMB administrator is not going to enforce that. Right. Right. And then that makes one think that well, the, the other institutional constraints that may matter will be at the end of the day how we think about the use of the courts, and to what extent public pressure uh, can, can raise the political cost enough that either the White House starts to lean on EPA or the EPA starts to, to change its behavior because they think the political cost has been raised enough by sort of public. So, so I, I, I'd like to hear sort of your take on sort of how do we think about the evolving norms and what, and, and that, that may not, I'm not suggesting that's an exhaustive set of constraints, but what, where we might see either institutional or political constraints affect how we think about things going forward. Um, well, I was, uh, I was going to talk about a lot of these individual okay. examples. And what's interesting is that um, the, the breaking of norms, which have been, has been widely observed, tends to take place in real time by different principles in the uh, um, Trump administration, and I would argue, as an aside, by Mitch McConnell, but that's another uh, another another discussion. But what's interesting about Scott Pruitt is that he codifies the norm breaking. I mean, uh, I don't know if any of you have seen, or if you have, you enjoyed as much as I do, uh, the movie uh, The Big Short. Um, and if you've seen it, you'll maybe recall the scene where some of the investors are investigating subprime market and talking to subprime mortgage brokers who are describing their uh, scurrilous practices in getting 
the unsuspecting to sign up to subprime mortgages. Um, and the investors say to each other at one point, why are these guys telling us this? And one of them says in response, one of the investors says in response, they're not confessing, they're bragging. So what, we, you know, what, what makes this a, a, a sort of compelling little project for us is that, you know, frankly, every one of these things has a memo that Scott <coughs> Pruitt had somebody draft and sign and, you know, uh, that scene, they're not confessing, they're bragging, comes to mind almost every day when we see a, a new report or the issuance of, of, of a new one of these things. My, to answer your question, um, what's, what's vexing about this, what's really troubling about this, is that none of these, if these were rules, they'd be subject to administrative law and the public would have recourse. You know, in the first instance to file comments on proposals and in the second instance to challenge the final action in federal court. Here you have changes where the sort of pollution and public health stakes are more or less the same, but the public doesn't have that kind of recourse. You know, none of, this, none of these actions went through uh, proposal uh, the opening of a record to take public comment and then uh, the option of petitioning the agency to reconsider or petitioning the DC circuit, uh, circuit to review. Um, so in a way, uh, it's gonna be hard to see public recourse as, as, a, as a way of, of, fix, of affecting this. The other areas where you might get pushback is that some of this stuff, uh, purports to reflect principles that implicate the interests of other agencies. Other agencies that are expert agencies that rely on science, that rely on studies, that rely on economics. And there may come a time when uh, and a, 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 a peer agency of the EPA um, finds itself having to object because it doesn't want to uh, compromise its own tools. And as I previewed a little bit, although this is really speculative, Joe, um, it may be in the courts that this <coughs> plays out. Um, because it, it, it's hard to overstate how much the courts either hate to second guess the agency on technical issues or how much they suffer when they try to. Uh, and the reason for that goes, just, goes beyond doctrine. It goes beyond, it, it, it's, it result, it's results of decades of practical experience. Um, and you know, if the, and if the agency is no longer able to persuade the court that it's good at its job, you know, it'll, it'll start having consequences. But that's gonna play out over a very long period of time. And my suggestion is that we all go out and vote in 2018 and 2020. Yeah, I'm a little curious if your optics are about the courts. And I'm a little concerned about what they're actually going to do. I mean, of course, there's a big lag as these suits are percolating through the court system. But there has been somewhat of a tradition recently of acceptance of presidential management, um, you know, going back to the Chevron case and State Farm, a greater acceptance of sort of politics and policymaking in agencies and less emphasis on the mid-20th century 
public administration and expertise, um, almost to throwing up one's hands by the courts about um, see, uh, of seeing the agencies as expert agencies, the way you're reminding us they were created to be. And I'm sort of curious what's going to happen and what your sense is as these things do get into court and whether the courts, which have not been particularly attentive to administrative process recently, yeah. they haven't really even cared about policing rulemaking. It's all been sort of all Chevron all the time right. and deference. <clears throat> is that a way to bring some accountability back in that um, we don't know about the technical and science aspects that the courts are good at process? Will they start looking at that? Will they, is, how do we bring them back to seeing the agencies as expert agencies, as you describe, and seeing them less as political institutions, which is the way they've come to be seen, even in the courts in the past couple of decades? Well, if I sounded optimistic, it was only by process of elimination from the uh, other forms of, forms of recourse. Um, I, you know, these are, most of what I said about the courts and the role they could play was speculative. Um, but uh, uh, my imagination is that, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, although it's not quite apropos. Um, earlier this week, the, the administrator signed a document um, uh, determining that after a, a review of, in midterm, of the implementation of the greenhouse gas emission standards for automobiles, um, he determined that the standards that had originally been adopted to affect motor vehicles in the 2020s were uh, uh, overly stringent, right? And the document he signed was 36 pages long. Now that document replaced a predecessor document that Gina McCarthy signed that was 1,300 pages long, assessing the same set of questions. Um, Pruitt or his attorneys will have to go ultimately before the DC Circuit um, to defend changes that they make in the level of emissions required from automobiles. And the DC Circuit will be expecting to, has been conditioned to see very, very extensive, very rigorous, um, disinterested, uh, expert uh, informed analyses justifying what the agency uh, is doing. Or, or what the agency did. Um, if Scott Pruitt is going to think that he can file a brief that reflects the level of work comparable to his 36-page docu document, in contrast to the 1,300-page document, then the court is likely to have a different reaction. Um, and you know, there, there's a there's a if you will a quality of work product that the DC Circuit has gotten used to seeing from the agency that you know, if practices over the last year are indicative, it may stop seeing from the EPA um, in the coming years when, when, uh, when these litigations go forward. Um, and that's, 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 where, that's where we'll find out whether the courts can be shocked back into 
into thinking of the agencies as expert agencies as opposed to merely political instruments. Um, uh, you know, there were, a, not, to, not, a, not to belabor this too much, but there were a couple of cases last year, one in the summer that the D.C. Circuit did and one in the fall that I think the Ninth Circuit did in which the, in both cases, the courts did something they had never done before, which is essentially interrupt the agency before it had taken a final action and say, what you've done is as if you had taken a final action. You didn't follow the process rules. You have to go back and start again. And I don't think we've ever seen that before. So, you know, the court's willing to step, step into, at least a couple of courts are willing to step into new, new so I'll move on to look at some of these in more detail. Um, you know, as, as, as you all probably already know and probably inferred from the first part of this discussion, um, uh, there's nothing more important to the agency's work than science, um, whether it's uh, epidemiology or other health sciences or atmospheric chemistry um, uh, or uh, uh, risk assessment for toxic chemicals or determining um, you know, whether or not biomass fuels are genuinely carbon neutral. Um, you know, the agency has to be really good at science. Um, and one of the things that made the agency good at science is that it, it built, sometimes on its own motion, sometimes following congressional directive, uh, a network of outside science advisory panels. Um, and the characteristic uh, a member of that panel was a, was a, a often A or B leading expert in a subdiscipline um, that often came from academic institutions that were funded by the federal government and in some cases by the EPA. Um, well, Scott Pruitt um, has decided that the term independence, as in independent scientists, excludes scientists that have received research grants from the government, but doesn't exclude scientists that are in the employ of, of the regulated community. Um, and as a result of having issued a memo saying that uh, only scientists that meet his completely novel definition of independence can serve on these advisory committees. Uh, and reporting that we've seen is that um, the uh, number of outside academic experts that have been members of these committees has shrunk uh, in absolute and proportionate terms, and the number of industry-employed or affiliated scientists has, uh, has increased. Um, so these panels now look different from the way they looked a year ago, and um, you now have interested parties engaging in what should be a disinterested um, uh, exercise. Uh, and you could argue that the quality of uh, the human resource on these panels in terms of scientific expertise <coughs> has changed and possibly been diminished. Um, and as you'll see with other kinds <coughs> of these changes, the rationale invoked is arguably susceptible to being characterized as bizarre. Right? I mean, if anybody can explain why taking a a competitive grant to do research from the government disqualifies you as an independent researcher, but being in the employ, employ of, a, of a regulated uh, business does not. 
um, then I will uh, with, take the slide out of the deck. Especially because the grants all have language in them that say the government can't tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. I mean, it, I mean, I mean, this, that, that, that's a good point. And these putative problems that that these directives are trying to solve uh, have already been solved by other means. You know, um, so you have a let's say a, a, a suspiciously results-oriented outcome that's a solution in search of a problem. Um, uh, compounding this is that um, uh, although this particular policy um, uh, hasn't been issued yet by the um, by the administrator, um, he committed um, in public to issuing a policy that. Uh, um, would, in the immediate term, have the effect of excluding from consideration by the agency the two foundational public health studies that the agency and other agencies of the government have relied on. Um, these are, uh, uh, let's see, one was done, known as the uh, Harvard Six Cities Study, and the other is a study undertaken by the American Cancer Society, um, both of which involved large uh, cohorts studied over uh, a long period of time, um, and they've uh, provided, you know, a, almost a bottomless well of information and analysis to the EPA and uh, academic and, and government uh, scientists. Um, these studies have been, uh, if you will, peer-reviewed, replicated, and reanalyzed to, to death, um, and. Uh, uh, really, they're, they're beyond reproach because they've been applied multiple times and, and tested many, many, many times. Um, what Pruitt has stated is that any study that relies on raw data that can't or won't be made public and put to use for uh, replication um, cannot be considered by, by the EPA. Um, and uh, the the difficulty with that is, is that the government relies on studies using data that it does not own. Um, and the owners of the data often manage their asset um, for the purpose of ensuring confidentiality um, of, the, of the subjects of the studies uh, or for business purposes of the information included in the studies. Um, so the Pruitt has announced the intention to write a rule that's directly disabling um, for, the, for the agency because in many cases the attempt to meet this new condition um, would, be, uh, would, be, uh, would be unimplementable, be doomed to failure. Um, and as I already suggested, um, as in the case of independent scientists, um, the, the rationale for this um, really uh, resembles a, uh, a solution in search of a problem because what the proponents of this approach have argued and members of Congress and, and members of the conservative uh, movement, if you will, have argued for this approach for years, they're arguing that unless that data is released and subject to being reproduced um, or the results being uh, subject to being reproduced, you can't trust the studies. But of course, the decades-old peer review process is where trustworthiness comes from. Um, and it certainly seems that we have another case where the rationale is not persuasive, 
But the outcome of this, if you will, questionable rationale is a set of results that are very convenient um, to a deregulatory agenda. Um, there are those who looked at this and already think that it may create legal problems um, for the agency. Um, and uh, the, 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 the stated rationale of trustworthiness or transparency is one that could be applied not just to the two studies in question in the context of the Clean Air Act and the agency's setting of air quality standards. Um, but uh, if, if, if the agency or the administration is willing to embrace the logic um, of this transparency policy, it's going to have widespread effects across the agency's work and potentially um, across um, the work of, of other uh, science-dependent or science-critical regulatory agencies. Joe, can I make a quick uh, sure. uh, comment on that point? You know, we're, we're, in this context, it has, of course, big implications mm -hmm. for assessing the effects of fine, more, fine particulates on mortality. Mm -hmm. Almost all the papers that are used to value reductions in mortality risk, I mean, all yes. the labor market studies are based on all the labor market studies that one should be using. There's some papers that go back to the 70s and 80s that for a variety of reasons, yes. much not used, but everything with data that almost everything that's been done since the mid or late 90s uses the census of fatal occupational injuries, which researchers can use from under a data use agreement with BLS, but they cannot make those data publicly available. <laughs> and um, it, so, so it suggests that it, if you really were to apply that, it wouldn't just affect the epidemiology when we think about the effects of air pollution and mortality, but also how we monetize. Yes. Changes in mortality risk, uh, and, and it would one would have to look at stated preference studies on sort of how they're designed and, and what same. kind of assurances have been made to those. It's the same thing. Yeah, same yeah. I guess the, there's there's yeah. a lot. Of, yeah. but, but in a sense, if you're using a census data center, it's publicly available, and you have to get approval. You have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. But if some third party wanted to come and replicate your results, they can get approved. And well, I, I mean, what? But this sounds like that that wouldn't be that wouldn't well, be sufficient. That, that that is true of these two in the sense that the owners of the data are well, willing to discuss terms for making it available. Then, then it is available. I mean, it's just a misinterpretation of what's available. Plus, the census data uh, are under all kinds of restrictions. Uh, there are ways now of um, doing a better job anonymizing data, which may make it more widely. Obviously, the intent here was not to right. protect privacy. Right. It was to <laughs> right. make it. So, if that's your intent, it's it's uh, 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 it's not the kind of response you have if your your goal was to protect people's privacy. Right. But like with these data, like the six cities went through was it the Health Effects Institute? Yes. So you yes. had a third party replication, kind of like how we think about making data available, whether it's through a census data center or something like that. So, you know. This announcement by Pruitt reflects a piece of legislation that was uh, marked up in the House of Representatives last year. It was introduced by Lamar Smith. And it's, that legislation was written in a way so that the precondition was, as a practical matter, virtually unfulfillable, um, you know, so that these studies would be knocked out. Um, one of the points, I think, we made in this white paper, this brief paper we did on this that I think you referred to, is 
these studies, these particular studies, not just as well as the other studies you mentioned, are of particular value to doing cost-benefit analysis. Um, and while statutes like the Clean Air Act don't require cost-benefit analysis to justify um, a particular regulation or, or agency action, um, uh, the executive branch has been requiring cost-benefit analysis of itself for a very long time. It is instrumental in direct and indirect ways in government policymakers setting priorities. And one of its handicaps is, uh, at least in the part of the world I worked in when I was in the government, um, we view as a handicap that it's uh, you know, easy to understate benefits when you're trying to translate them into monetary uh, metrics and not that hard to state costs. And these studies have been used by a lot of practitioners inside various agencies as a corrective device to try to rebalance the, 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 the cost-benefit um, asymmetry. Uh, and if this transparency rule is applied to either within the agency or agency-wide, or within the AIR program or agency-wide or across the government, one, uh, one of these corrective tools is going to be going to be Oh, and gases rhythm methods as being, method cost analysis as being a corrective to the sort of decision making that this administration yeah. is engaging in, which is, um, it forces you to look at some data rather yeah, than. Yeah, as, as opposed to consulting, consulting ideology and, and only ideology. You talked about two separate things agency procedures, so if you mean a different word, and then rulemaking. If you go to court and they have the Chevron deference uh, standard, does that reach the procedures, or is that only when they publish a rule that interprets the legislation? It, it's only when they publish a rule that interprets the legislation. The deference under that doctrine goes exclusively to interpreting the agency's authorizing statute, or the provisions in the statute authorizing or mandating the agency action. Um, Chevron def very often these kinds of issues are not directly reviewed by the court at all not at all and in any event they, they wouldn't uh, Chevron <coughs> wouldn't apply so what, what, what remedy could you get from the courts with respect to this Sorry. none that, I mean that's what's that's one of the bedeviling things about this is that you have these high consequence um, you know high, high consequence decisions being made by the administrator if they somehow were made in the form of a rule, there'd be public comment and, and a judicial review. But none of these are subject to judicial review unless, as we talked about before, they lead to, to you know, to a chain of consequences that eventually affect a rule and the record on which a rule is based. And but it's only then that the court would review the attenuated or indirect effects of, of this of, of these actions. Um, the, 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 uh, Scott Pruitt has a pointed view on climate science as opposed to expertise um, and he's made it uh, he's done a couple of things to make sure that his pointed view is reflected one is you can no longer go to the agency website as you could as recently as January of 2017 to get up to date information about climate science or up-to-date information about um, the impact of agency actions on climate. You can get information about that um, circa 2016 
because the previous, because the Obama web pages on these subjects have been archived. But if you want to know anything that's happened with respect to this information since January 2017, you can no longer go to the EPA website to find it. Um, and that is, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, just as an aside, some of the things that I've been talking about here, and I think in a way that's what informed the McCarthy McCabe quote that I put up there um, at the beginning, is some of this stuff partakes of the, of the characteristics of an almost cultural taboo. Um, and doing something like this, you know, just um, uh, kind of abrogating the, the vast wealth of expertise the agency has accumulated and applied to climate um, and the underpinning of the, let's say, endangerment finding, uh, the government-wide continual assessment of climate science and climate impacts, and replacing it with one particular administrator's point of view, either directly or indirectly, um, really is violating a taboo. And in a way, one of the goals of this project is to do continuous evaluation as to whether or not these taboo violations are also violations of something that's instrumental um, to the agency doing its job. Um, after hiding up-to-date or preventing up-to-date science and policy on climate from being available to the public via the EPA website, uh, the agency just handed out to its career staff who interact with third parties in the public a set of talking points on climate. Uh, and some of the language in the talking points, um, if repeated verbatim to members of the public, would leave the audience with a sense that there is a level of doubt about climate science that um, um, essentially doesn't, doesn't exist within the scientific community. Um, uh, and, you know, from our point of view, um, you know, this is sort of a, a couple, this is sort of ticky-tack stuff, but, you know, it really does go to what could be viewed as a taboo um, in terms of manipulating what's supposed to be disinterested scientific information shared with the public um, to reflect uh, the, the administration's point, point of view. Um, and it's particularly, uh, particularly uh, disturbing given how much investment the agency itself has made in climate science uh, and the fact that it, it has issued not just once in 2009 but repeatedly through 2016 um, findings that greenhouse gases present a, a threat to public health and the environment. Joe, we've got about yeah. five minutes. Okay. Well, um, I, let me wrap this up to say that, uh, uh, again, in the in the realm of, of bragging as opposed to confessing, Pruitt has put out a detailed memorandum explaining uh, to his agency and therefore to the public um, how hard it's going to be now for the public to actually, as a practical matter, um, use its legal rights to hold the agency accountable when it fails to um, uh, fails to do its duty or meet, meet, meet a mandate. Um, uh, in the past, the agency has embraced the fact that Congress gave the public the right uh, to bring judicial actions and has done so by seeking, once those suits are uh, brought, to enter into settlement agreements under which the agency agrees to a schedule to make a rule 
um, that really, in a way, enhances the utility of this tool to the public because the process of resolution is not burdensome to uh, outside parties who bring litigation. But now Pru has introduced a bunch of steps, including privileging the input of, of industry um, that will make reaching resolution uh, 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 subject to delay and a lot more resources on the port part of the public. So again, it's a way of dodging accountability. Uh, and I have to say that the underlying documents supporting this edict um, are uh, scurrilous. Um, they include statements that are uh, uh, tendentious and false about how this practice was applied in the past, uh, and they include um, what I would have to describe as a novel to the point of being a hallucinogenic theory of separation of powers. Um, again, and I think this is a theme that I was trying to emphasize, with each of these changes, Pruitt has articulated a rationale, but in many of the cases, the rationales there we stand up to even the most cursory scrutiny. Um, uh, the, 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 I guess the last thing, um, last category or second to last category where Pruitt has um, uh, uh, taken action is to really undermine enforcement and compliance. Um, he sent a signal that it with respect to at least one key program, um, the much-hated uh, New Source Review Program. Um, uh, it's now the policy of the agency to give individual sources a mulligan on one particular step that they're obligated to take um, and no longer be subject to substantive scrutiny. And for purposes of fostering compliance at, on, at the uh, at sources across the country, and ultimately, if need be, for bringing enforcement, the agency has relied on the independent work of its regional offices. Well, now the regional offices can no longer, on their own motion, collect information and, and investigate compliance performance um, of sources in their areas or in their regions. They have to go through headquarters. Um, and that is a, a severe, if not politicized, bottlenecking process. You know, all of which you know, brings us back to the original canaries in the coal mine. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and what we think is a, a, a reason to continue to assess not, that the, not just these changes in practices and, and the internal logic such as it is of these directives, but how they're actually affecting the agency's business. And our expectation is is that this is not the end of the list of explicit norm-breaking or norm revision. Um, and as I said before, um, we're doing this as much by crowdsourcing as by relying on our own uh, uh, fellows and research assistants. So um, as you all encounter these issues in your own work, please give us uh, a call. Um, in fact, here's my email. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Joe.